Be seated, please. Good morning. Amen. Oh, I like throw a little because my little battery light's dead. Now, how's that? If I just stand like this, hold this leg up, it's like I used to be my dad's antenna, you know, and we had the rabbit ears. Jeff, go hold that. I can't get somehow. The, anyway, um, good morning. We're glad you're here. In case you haven't figured it out, we're a pretty laid back bunch. We, uh, when you came in, if you're visiting with us, you may not have uh, uh, gotten what was going on, but if you look around, you'll see that... This body, this group that meets here really loves each other. We're happy to see each other on a Sunday morning. And, and we would love for you to be a part of that. And so I encourage you, if you're visiting with us, catch some of us out here in the foyer. We're going to be talking to each other. We're going to be carrying on. We'll probably be being silly or goofy or whatever. But it's because we love each other. And, and we want you to be a part of that body, for real. Um, if you are visiting with us, I encourage you to come back tonight. Tonight at 5 o'clock we have what we call SNT, and that just means Sunday night together. Um, basically, we're all going to come together. We're going to sing a few songs. And tonight, Evan, our youth minister, Evan O'Rear, is going to present to us uh, some things that the kids did on Trek, uh, Wilderness Trek, and, and just some of the stuff that's going on with them. And so, you know, I'm not telling you you have to be here, but those of us that love the Lord and that uh, care about the youth are going to be here. So... That's your decision. Um, I'm just kidding. Um, I, I do want you to know a couple of things I have to announce before we move any further. Um, one is, if you haven't signed up for camp yet, uh, the deadline to sign up for that is this Friday. That is students who are leaving the third grade all the way through high school. Is that correct? Um, so if you fit into that bracket, Hey, you want to be a part of this, this will be fun. And if you're thinking, well, I don't know if we can afford it. Hey, come talk to somebody. We don't want that to be a reason that you're left out. Um, you, you want to get that in. And right now they have, uh, I think 14 going, uh, maybe 15. And, uh, we would love to have to rent vehicles to get them there. That would be awesome. So, uh, get signed up for that. Also this Tuesday, Somebody who knows, isn't this Tuesday, Brothers in Christ? Nod your head, thank you. Yes, this Tuesday, Brothers in Christ, right here. If you're a male, uh, this is where the men of this church kind of hang out, get to know one another, really laid back, really informal. You will have a good time. If you've been around here for very long, you've heard me say that prayer is the work of the church. And we take that very, very, very seriously. That's something that's not just a slogan or a, a thing. We take that seriously. I'm going to show you right now because I believe that Prayer is even more important than, than the sermon or any of this stuff. A lot of churches, that's, you know, the show is more important. You've seen already. We'll throw in a song here or there. We don't care. The, the coming before God is what's important for us. We're going to pray right now because I was specifically asked to uh, lift up one of our sisters. Carol Davis is uh, having a really, really hard time right now. And uh, she is basically bedridden and uh, 
to make matters even worse, Rex is taking care of her. So you can imagine, where's he at? I'm messing with him. Um, but seriously, we're going to pray for both of them um, right now because uh, they have an appointment on Tuesday. We're just going to ask God to work in that because when you come to us and ask for prayer, we believe that that's very, very important. That's one of the reasons that we're here. So if you will, bow with me and we'll go to God together. Our Father in heaven, we come to you this morning. We continue to worship and praise and lift you up, Lord. We thank you so much for all the blessings that you've given us. You've given us so much more than we could ask or imagine. We praise and glorify you for everything that you've blessed us with. And one of those things that you've blessed us with is the ability to come into your presence, to lift up to the creator of of everything our feeble little cares and and struggles. And we know that, that... you actually listen, that you're interested in our lives and you want to work for our good in all situations. And so this morning, we lift up to you our sister Carol as, as she is struggling with health, Lord. And we just boldly, in the name of Jesus, we ask for healing for her. And Lord, we don't really care how you do that. You're God. We don't pretend to tell you how to be God. We just beg you in the name of Jesus to make her well. Whether you do that miraculously, whether you do that through doctors and medicine, makes no difference because you're still God and we still believe that all healing comes from you. We ask you, Lord, to make Carol well. We ask you, Lord, to give Rex an extra measure of strength and and patience and compassion and, and the ability to do all those things that he's having to do to take care of her. And, Lord, we specifically ask that, that you bless all those doctors and, and nurses and medical staff that will be uh, looking at her and, and trying to diagnose and, and help her. Lord, we just pray all these things. We ask you to be in this situation and to work your mighty power however you see fit. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what are you struggling with right now? Are you struggling with something? I know you are because one of the, one of the biggest questions you get asked as a preacher is, how do I discern what the will of God is in this situation? I'm struggling with something and I want to know what's the will of God. I'm desperately seeking God's will. Um, And and when when we are going through life, we invariably come to those places where we're seeking God's will. And and that's one of the key reasons that our society is, is struggling today because we've removed the will and the wisdom of God from our collective decision making. Our 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 culture, when a, when a culture is religious, when a, a country or even a community follows God and looks to God for wisdom, then, then there's direction. There's a purpose. You believe that you were put here for a reason by a divine creator who has a plan that is working out in your life for you. Um, that purpose drives not only our lives, but our decision making and everything around us. But if you live in a society like ours that would tell you that we are just happy little accidents, that, that we're not here for, for any purpose, we're just little accidents that popped up through evolution or whatever, that there's no purpose in your life, then everything that gives your life meaning is taken away. What I mean by that is you'll see people who say, well, you know, I'm not really religious, I don't really follow God, but I I, I believe in my family. Well, I'm sorry, but without God, there is no family. That doesn't happen in nature. The idea of family is not natural. That's something that God came up with. Well, but I'm really devoted to my wife. Well, I'm sorry, but marriage is something that God 
created. That's not, if you take God out of that, out of that picture, then, then you have nothing. You have no purpose. You have no direction. Well, we're really working for civil rights or social justice or whatever. I'm sorry, but without God, we have no concept of justice or morality or right and wrong. It's just survival of the fittest, and, and we're all just doing the best we can to survive another day. Without God, our life has purpose. Without God, there is no such thing as direction or purpose in our life. So, life without godly wisdom is pointless. When we seek God's will, we're actually seeking God's wisdom. Because while some of our decisions are factual, like uh, how many milligrams of ibuprofen should I take for my headache? That's a factual question. You can, you can get that by discerning the facts. Other decisions we make are, are more moral, like uh, um, should I commit adultery? Um, that's more of a moral question. But a lot of the other questions that we face in our lives, there's not going to be a specific Bible verse that's going to tell you whether you should marry this person, whether you should take that job, whether you should make this move. Those are decisions where we seek God's wisdom. We're seeking not merely God's will, but God's wisdom. Now here's the problem. It's hard to trust God's wisdom when I don't really know what that is. You know, if somebody says to you, what is the wisdom of God? If you were in class this morning, you heard on the video Chip Ingram say that when he was asked that before he went to seminary, he would have responded, well, he's knowledgeable. He knows everything, so he must be a pretty smart guy. But wisdom is so much more than that. Wisdom is not just intelligence. It's not just smartness or, or knowledge. Wisdom is something quite different than that. So this morning, let's, let's begin with defining the wisdom of God. What does it mean when we talk about the wisdom of God? And so we're going to try to define the wisdom of God, and we're going to talk a little bit about what that looks like in our lives, and specifically how we access that wisdom. So the wisdom of God is, is this is a, a definition, it's an attribute of God whereby he produces the best possible results by the best possible means. That's a definition by Louis Burkhoff, who's a German theologian, and that's a pretty classical theological definition. Webster is going to say it's the quality of being wise, because Webster's so helpful. Um, it, it's the power of judging rightly basically. It's following the soundest course of action based on knowledge, experience, and understanding. Now catch this. The, the root words of wisdom have the idea of the ability to see and to know. In other words, it's, it's life savvy. Are you with me? It's not just IQ. It's not just intelligence. It's not how you do on a test. Wisdom is understanding how life works and, and how God has designed life to work, and, and how God brings about the best possible results in, in relationships and in decisions and in parenting and in marriage. And, and so the wise people that you and I go to for counsel, they have two abilities. One, that they can see either by experience or by knowledge or, or scripture or insight, they can see things differently than you and I see them. They have a clearer picture of whatever it is that I'm wrestling with. And, and second, they have knowledge. 
Whether that knowledge has come through, uh, through education or whether it's come through understanding or whether it's come through experience, they have some way of knowing things that maybe you and I don't. That's what wisdom is all about. So, surely the wisest person on the face of the earth is someone who could what? See everything? Make sense? Right? It, 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 I love how Dr. Charles Ryrie, who taught at Dallas Seminary, defines the omniscience of God. He says, God knows all things actual and possible. Pretty much everything. Right? So if God is all-knowing and all-seeing, He must be all wise. So one possible definition of the wisdom of God would be God brings about the best possible results for the most possible people in the best possible way. That's the idea. He's going to bring us the best results by the best means for the most people for the longest time. And that's a nice theological definition of the wisdom of God. But how does that work? It's easy for us to know that, but how do, we, how do we understand that where we can trust in that, where I can hold on to that? Fortunately, the Bible has a lot to say about this. The Bible has a, a, an entire section of what is called wisdom literature, and specifically three books, the book of Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes, and the book of Job. Those are what's commonly referred to as the wisdom literature. Now, Proverbs, we as Christians too often treat like a, a bunch of fortune cookie sayings. You know, the little, little, little blurbs that we pull out whenever we need one, or that, that looks good, uh, crocheted or needle-pointed, or, or is on a motivational poster with a picture of a tiger. You know what I'm talking about. We, we use those as little, little quips and little sayings, little fortune cookie, nice little sayings that, that, that we whip out. But Proverbs is much more than that. Proverbs is painting the picture of the natural order of things. Proverbs is saying that there is a structure. There is a structure to the way life works. If you work hard, you'll be rewarded. If you raise good kids, they'll grow up to be good adults. If you make good decisions, your life's going to be a lot better for it. That's Proverbs. Proverbs is saying, because of this, then this. If you do this, then this is the result. There is a natural order to things. Now, if you've been around for any length of time, if you've lived through anything in your life, you know that that's true, but it's not always true, right? You can think of as instances where you know somebody who works really hard but doesn't get ahead. You can think of people you know that, that did the best they possibly knew how and, and still had children turn out and make bad decisions, right? And that's where Ecclesiastes comes in. Ecclesiastes basically says, um, yes, but. Yes, there is an order to things, but it doesn't always work that way. And so Ecclesiastes is saying, yeah, but not totally. Sometimes it's more like this. And then that brings us to Job. The book of Job is the oldest book in the Bible. Now, people will go, but what about Genesis? You realize Genesis wasn't a play-by-play account. That they weren't there. That was written later. You with me? Um, Job has Hebrew so old in some of the versions that we have that Hebrew scholars struggle even to, to understand what it means. It, it's, it's so old that, that they have to use conjecture and etymology. And I know I'm talking Bible nerd stuff. I can see your face glazing over. At any rate, Job is the oldest book in the Bible. And, and it, it was... 
it, it's, it's, so, it's such an ancient book, and it's trying to give us to address the problem of suffering as it relates to the wisdom of God. Job is trying to answer the question of why do bad things happen to good people, right? Because Job is a good guy. When the Bible calls you righteous, the Bible very seldom calls people righteous. And it says Job is a righteous man. Job is a righteous man. He is right with God. He's doing everything right. And if you remember the story, what happens? Job is doing everything right. He's doing everything right with God. And there gets to be this cosmic bet. I know we're not supposed to talk about that. But that's basically what happens. God brags on Job. Now, stop for a minute and think about how cool that is. The fact that God can be proud of you. Think about that. God, Satan doesn't bring up Job. God does. God says, how about, how about my boy Job? You seen him? My boy Job is killing it down there. You see, you see what's going on right there? That's what he does. He's proud of him. Now that, to me, is exciting. I, I would love for God to be proud of me. I don't think that happens very often, but I would love for it to. Except when you see what happens after that. Because... Yes, God is proud of him, but that's when the accuser, in Hebrew, the Satan, comes up and says, uh, well, yeah, of course, of course he's righteous, because you give him everything. You give him all these blessings, you take care of him, you take all that stuff away, he'll curse your name. He's no different than any of the rest of them. He's not any, any better, he's just a guy. And so this thing happens, and and. The accuser is allowed to, to take on Job. Now, you won't... That, he takes everything away from him. Everything. And, and if you read the book of Job, he's stripped of his family, he's stripped of his finances, he's stripped of his wealth, he's stripped of his reputation, he's stripped of his health, he's stripped of everything. And the rest of the book, then, is Job trying to understand the wisdom of his situation. Why did this happen? And so we get interpretations from earthly wisdom and from religious wisdom. You notice I didn't say godly wisdom. Job's wife is the voice of earthly wisdom. Job's wife says, if there really is a God, he doesn't like you very much. And so you just need to quit trying to figure out why this is happening. Quit trying to get right with God. Give up, let it go, and move on. And remember earlier, we talked about how without God, life is empty and without purpose. We, we find that most prominently visible in suffering. When we hit a trial, when we hit something that, that we struggle with, when we, when we suffer in in. In hard times, we really see our purpose. We really see what's truly important in our life. And because if, if you live your life in a way where there is no purpose, then suffering becomes pointless, becomes meaningless. And like Job's wife, you just say, let's let go and get it over with. Then you get the religious wisdom. Now, I didn't say godly wisdom. The religious wisdom... Is, is naive, if you will. Religious wisdom is all Proverbs and no Ecclesiastes. Religious wisdom says, this is the, the voice of Job's friends, they come and they say, obviously you have sin in your life. Obviously you've done something wrong. 
If you're struggling, there must be something wrong in your life for God to be cursing you. Religious wisdom acknowledges that there is a natural order to the world, that there is a point, but religious wisdom is naive. What I mean by that, you see this displayed in in how we address poverty, for example. Everyone who is religious sees, uh, 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 feels a a compelling need to reach out to the poor. We, We feel that deep inside of us because we know that these people are made in the image of God, that they are struggling, and and we feel like God has blessed us to bless them. We all come to it from that perspective. But the naivety comes in how we address it. We have the religious wisdom because we, we feel compelled to address it. But then the liberal religious address it by throwing money and stuff at them. If we just give them more money, if we just give them more stuff, if we just give them more and more and more, it'll get better. But that ends up creating more problems than it helps because it creates people who are dependent and and who are helpless for themselves. Now, on the other side, you have the conservative religious, and the conservative religious want to help them, but we just want to preach to them. If you just get a job, if you just be better, if you just stop doing the things you're doing, if you just... If you'd just be more like me, then this wouldn't happen to you. And both ends of the spectrum are naive because while they see the problem, they're addressing the problem from a place of godliness, but they're naive because they don't have the wisdom to understand the bigger issues of the problem. So let's come to Job 28. If you have your Bibles this morning, go ahead, turn to Job 28. Job 28 is a beautiful example of Hebrew poetry. It, it poetically poses a question of how to attain godly wisdom. Job chapter 28, and we're going to start about verse 9. Man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the streams so that they do not trickle, and the thing that is hidden he brings out to light. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. Stop right there. Godly wisdom cannot be found in the land of the living, Job says. It cannot be bought because it's worth more than gold. It cannot be discovered. It cannot be mined. That's the picture he's giving here of of men mining for gold and for silver. It it cannot be mined. We can't find a vein of wisdom to tap. It's it's beyond our reach. It's beyond our our knowledge. It's beyond our understanding. It's beyond our abilities. What Job is saying here is beyond our technology. It's beyond our ability to reach. Because the wisdom of God is set apart from this world because God is set apart from this world. I'll give you an example. In 1961, the Russians were the first to send a man into space. Some of you remember that. 1961, Sputnik went into space, and a man named Yuri Gagarin was, was, one of the first, or was the first man in space. And after his flight, Gagarin came back, and a few months later, the premier of Soviet Union, Nikita Khrushchev, was delivering a speech at the Central Committee of the CPSU. And in talking about it, in talking about his worldview of atheism, he said Gagarin flew into space but didn't see any God there. Now, at this time, C.S. Lewis was still living, 
And Lewis famously wrote a reply in a newspaper, and this is Lewis's reply. If there is a God who created the world and created us, I could no more meet him than Hamlet could meet Shakespeare. If Hamlet wants to prove there is a Shakespeare, he's not going to be able to do it in a lab, nor is he going to be able to find Shakespeare by going up into the top of the stage. The only way he will know something about Shakespeare is if Shakespeare writes something about himself into the play. Isn't that cool? You love C.S. Lewis. The, the, the idea is you're not going to find God by going into space any more than we're going to find God by, then Hamlet's going to find Shakespeare by climbing in the attic. It's not going to happen. The wisdom of God is not attainable through the means of this world because the wisdom of God is not of this world. The wisdom of God is not of this world because God is not of this world. The only way we can attain that wisdom of God is for it to come to us. We can't seek it. We can't buy it. We can't find it. Keep going. Verse 23. God understands the way to it. And he knows its place, for he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. Job says we can't attain the wisdom of God. We can't purchase it we can't mine it we can't pursue it the only way it's going to come to us is for it to come to us we can't go to it so the only true wisdom we can attain is fear of the lord now i'm not talking about get my act together or god will smite me kind of fear that the word here is not being afraid as much as it is revering it's revering god hallowing his name lifting him up see godly wisdom looks stupid to earthly wisdom Godly wisdom looks foolish even to religious wisdom because godly wisdom doesn't make sense. It's not of this world. The idea that Job would still hallow the name of God, would still hold God up as holy when his life is in shambles doesn't make sense to the earthly wisdom of his wife. The idea that Job would continue to trust God through his suffering doesn't make sense to the religious wisdom of his friends. The idea of fearing God is to be better, is to be good in their minds. So how do you and I attain the wisdom of God? We can't buy it, we can't pursue it, we can't mine it, we can't go to it, it can only come to us. How do we make that happen? How does it come to us? Paul would say the only way you're going to attain the wisdom of God is by being foolish. Bear with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 through 23. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he's wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it's written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God's. We can't get to the wisdom of God. It can only come to us. Now remember what Lewis said? The only way we'll know something about Shakespeare, the only way Hamlet will know something about Shakespeare is if Shakespeare writes himself into the play. We cannot attain the wisdom of God. We cannot seek it out. We can't mine it. We can't buy it. We can't earn it. We can't deserve it. But we can 
receive it. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2 through 5. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Remember our definition of the wisdom of God? He is going to bring the best results by the best means for the most people for the longest time. He accomplished that through the person of Jesus Christ. Wisdom came to us. The author wrote himself into the play. And it looked like absolute foolishness to men. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. Wisdom came to us in the form of Jesus Christ. See, the wisdom of men says that your life is pointless. It's meaningless. You're just a speck of evolution on a giant rock hurtling through space. The wisdom of men says that the things you're struggling with in your life are pointless. But the fear of God, Trusting that He is all-wise, that He is good, and that He's working to bring the best result in whatever struggle you're facing. That's true wisdom. That wisdom is trusting, hoping, clinging to the power of God. The way we get to that is not through our own power, not through our own strength not through our own goodness or righteousness it can only come to us and it came to us in Jesus Christ and Jesus says I am the way and the truth and the life if you want to come to the father if you want to attain that godly wisdom no one comes to the father except through me so this morning you have an opportunity to to trust in the power of God to receive the wisdom of God to accept the wisdom of God. Now to do that, you submit yourself to Him. You give it up and say, look, my wisdom ain't working. But God's wisdom is what I'm going to put my faith in. God's wisdom is what I'm going to trust in. And we do that through submitting ourselves in baptism, through symbolically being buried in water and and raised again. We are raised in a new life. And, and the fear of the Lord is trusting in that power of God. And that power of God, Paul says, then comes to dwell inside of you and gives life to your mortal body. We can't go to wisdom, but wisdom can come to us. Through baptism, if you've already become a Christian through confession, through repentance, and through prayer. Right now we're going to sing a song, and when we do that, the opportunity is for you to accept that wisdom. For you to say, I need prayer. I need to change. I need to repent. I need help because I can't do it on my own. And I want to come to the wisdom of God. I want to receive that wisdom in the form of Jesus Christ. This is your opportunity to receive that wisdom. Won't you receive it right now while together we stand and sing?